You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Well, good morning. It's very good to be here with you this morning and to join you for morning worship. Thank you for having me. A special thank you to my friend, Pastor Jacob. So thankful for Jacob and his family and this church and their faithful stand for the gospel and for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it's a privilege to be here. Well, let's turn to God's Word together, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to read the whole chapter. This passage is part of the famous discourse of Moses with God at the burning bush. And we're effectively cutting in about halfway through. So Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Then Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Then he said, Throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. Moses ran from it, but the Lord told him, Stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so they will believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, white as snow. Then he said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you have been speaking to your servant, because I am slow and hesitant in speech. Yahweh said to him, Who made the human mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron... The Levite, your brother, I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will be your spokesman, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, 
Now I will kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of Israel Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's pray for a moment. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we come to this fascinating passage this morning where Moses is learning more about God's calling on his life and what God requires of him. And the ultimate goal that is in view here is that God's people will be liberated to honor, to worship, and to serve God in the earth. That's what the Exodus is about. And this is all that is happening in the build-up to that incredible event of the Exodus of God's people from Egypt. So we're going to consider the passage under three headings. Three signs, two objections, and freedom for the people of God. The three signs, the two objections, and freedom for the people of God. So let's begin by thinking about the three signs that God uh, performs and says he's going to perform in Egypt. Now up to this point in his life, Moses' actions have basically been self-motivated. He was concerned about his own people in Egypt, the Hebrews. And you'll recall that on one occasion he rose up in his own strength when he saw one of his countrymen being abused and he slew, he killed an Egyptian guard. And then when he realized that Pharaoh was angry, he fled Egypt to save himself. Moses is now married. He is tending sheep. He's been wandering around about in the desert for many years. And he's making a living for himself with his father-in-law, Jethro. He has a wife, Zipporah. Now, the urge that Moses had to help his people is still there. It didn't disappear. It's still there in his heart. But with no solution in sight... Until this conversation at the burning bush, God has basically been teaching Moses to wait. In this time that Moses has been in the wilderness, he's gone from a prince in the house of Egypt to a shepherd in the wilderness. During this period, God has been breaking Moses' strength, his own self-confidence, his own self-reliance. And he's learning about what reliance on God really looks like. Now Moses does know, because we know from chapter 3, that he is being sent to Pharaoh. That's the first part of this discourse at the burning bush. But he's no idea how God is going to work this deliverance. Beyond being told, God is going to do some miracles. And so naturally... Moses has all kinds of questions. He's got all kinds of doubts. He's got all kinds of fears. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Sometimes we 
look at these biblical characters and we sort of put them on a pedestal as though they are somehow quasi-human, but not really human like you and I. But Moses was every bit as human as you and I, every bit as fallible, every bit as sinful. And he has all kinds of doubts and fears about God's calling on his life and how it's going to happen. Well, God wants to give him confidence, a different kind of confidence. And it's interesting uh, that Moses' first objection to what God is sending him to do, and we're going to return to this in a moment, isn't concerned primarily with the Egyptians or with Pharaoh or the fear of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but with the cynicism of his own people. The cynicism of his own people. It's a common feature, actually, of Scripture and church history that frequently those who play, claim to be God's people are the most resistant to God's prophets and God's messengers. And this is true even in the ministry of the Lord Jesus and that of the apostles amongst the Jews. Jesus said to them, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. And look at the persecution of the apostles, of the disciples amongst their own people. So to prepare Moses for what lies ahead, to confirm his calling, to meet his concerns and his fears and his anxiety, God in his grace offers these three signs, two of which he performs right in front of him. And the other is going to be done before the Israelites and then later all of the Egyptians. So, so they are the, the staff or the rod, what happens to the staff and rod, the leprous or diseased white hand, and the Nile water becoming blood. Now before we quickly consider those, if you want to appreciate the full significance of these signs and their importance in engaging Egypt, challenging Egypt, it's important to say something about the religious faith of Egypt. This was not sort of a, a collection of parlor tricks that God came up with randomly, thought, you know, here's a, here's a couple of good ones, that'll scare them. Uh, there's a significance, as with everything that God does, to the signs that he's going to perform through Moses. The, uh, I thought it was funny as well, the, the, pyramids, the pyramids of Egypt, have you ever thought about, if I, if I were to say, you know, what's the first thing you think of when I say Egypt, it's probably pyramids. They're strange things, aren't they? Completely out of place, seemingly, in the desert. These uh, triangular structures, an amazing sense of permanence, they're still there. I mean, some of them are still there, not in the condition they quite once were, but they're still there, one of the seven wonders of the world. Their durable permanence and their actual triangular shape reveal a religious view of their culture, a religious view that believed they were aligned with the essential structure of being. The Egyptians really believed that the universe was a static realm without change. And so they built monuments. There was a religious significance to the pyramid as it pointed up towards heaven. It was the connecting point between heaven and earth in the Pharaoh. And here was something truly permanent. Here was something that aligned with the structure of all things, this beautiful mathematical structure. One cultural commentator put it this way, he says, in challenging Egypt's faith, God struck at the world of nature. Suddenly, nature became to the Egyptian mind perverse and undependable. This fact struck at the foundation of Egyptian life and religion. Egypt's certainties became uncertainties. So they thought of the world of nature as permanent, as unchanging, as fixed. And the culture of Egypt was built around that thought, the Nile, the Pharaoh, the pyramids, permanence, 
And God is sending Moses with signs that will shatter the Egyptians' religious idea of the world. So let's think about the first sign, the rod or the staff. So Moses is instructed to throw his shepherd's staff on the ground. Shepherds typically, especially in the, I know they drive Land Rovers now or four-wheel, whatever they are, whatever we call them, but uh, shepherds would typically have a staff in their hand. It's interesting, though, that this text actually tells us that this is the Lord's staff. Verse 17, take this staff in your hand, and the staff is, according to this text, the Lord's staff. So it's a shepherd's staff. It's probably got a hook on the end for pulling back the sheep. And the staff was a symbol in Scripture of power and authority. It's been a symbol of power and authority throughout the world, actually, from ancient times. So he's told, throw your shepherd's staff, this wooden stick, on the ground, and when he does so, it becomes a snake. And naturally, Moses recoils from it. He runs from it. Dangerous serpent on the ground. God says, no, Moses, pick it up by the tail now. He reaches down. He picks it up by the tail. It returns to being a staff again. A wooden rod. So the rod and the staff in the Bible, you immediately hear those two words. You think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. The rod is a symbol of power and authority. And it's ultimately a symbol and a sign of Christ's authority over the nations. Many of the great kings, the great emperors of the ancient world used the symbol of the staff and referred to themselves as shepherds. And Jesus, of course, is described as the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. We tend to think of that, you know, cuddly image, Jesus with little lambs on his shoulders wandering around. Okay, well, there's element of truth to that. He is gathering his sheep into the fold. He does carry his lambs like a flock. But the root of that symbolism of the shepherd is that Christ, as the great shepherd, is claiming authority over all of the nations, over all the kings and emperors of the world. And that's what Psalm 2 makes crystal clear, which speaks about the rod or staff that he rules with a rod of iron. So Moses' rod, his staff, is a type of divine power which in the good shepherd's hand, and here Moses is being called by God as a shepherd of the people Israel. He's a good shepherd. He's a type here of Christ. In the, she- in the good shepherd's hand, it's one of tenderness and care, justice, righteousness. But the power and authority wielded outside of the hand and rule of God changes character, and it becomes a serpent. Power and authority wielded outside of God's ordained purpose, outside of his hand. It's the Lord's staff, remember. All authority is the Lord's staff. All delegated authority is the Lord's staff. When God is put out of the picture, it changes character and becomes a serpent. It's diabolic. And that's why Scripture declares, can a corrupt throne be your ally? A throne that makes evil laws, Psalm 94, 20. And the snake actually had an important role in Egyptian mythology. It had a prominent place on the front of Pharaoh's crown because it set forth Pharaoh's power to kill. The snake in this form was a symbol of the goddess Wadjet in Egypt. And like a serpent, Moses, uh, Pharaoh, is biting and killing God's people. But he's soon to be turned into a dry stick. The godless state, godless power and authority becomes a leviathan. It becomes a serpent opposed to God when it's outside of the Lord's hand, when it acts in rebellion against God. 
However, back in the hands of Moses as God's servant, the serpent returns to being a shepherd's staff. It's a wonderful illustration of the meaning, actually, of Psalm 2, the true shepherd king who alone has true authority to rule the nations. And in our own time, we see the state when it becomes more and more godless, when it takes the authority delegated by God and uses it in rebellion against God, it moves in opposition to God. It becomes serpentine. So that's the first sign, the staff becoming a serpent and returning to being a staff. Then there is the leprous white hand or the diseased hand. Moses is instructed, put your hand in your cloak. When he removes it, it's white, it's diseased, it's leprous. This is getting pretty Lord of the Rings now. Right? He puts it back in. He removes it again. It's made whole. It must have been a terrifying experience. In Scripture, leprosy, these skin diseases, symbolized sin and defilement. If you were leprous, you were expelled from the community. You were separated from society. You were defiled. You were unclean. It's the Lord Jesus Christ alone who can cleanse us, who can remove our defilement. And that's why in Jesus' own ministry, he cleanses lepers. Diseased and unclean was how Pharaoh was soon to be perceived by his own people. He'd soon be covered in sores. Only God is able to cleanse us by His grace and make us a new creation. And that included hard-hearted Israel who were going to be made to hear and respond. So the leprous white hand is the second sign that God is going to use to speak to His people. And then thirdly, the Nile water becoming blood. Now, this sign is not performed in front of Moses. It was later performed by Aaron before the people. That was in verse 30. And then, of course, finally, it's performed on a grand scale before Pharaoh. And this sign also has a very, very interesting significance. It refers us back to the Hebrew infants who were thrown into the Nile in Exodus chapter 1. Remember... Uh, Pharaoh, who is also an image and a type of Satan in Scripture, is committing infanticide. And he's having the newborn babies of, of the Hebrews cast into the Nile and drowned. You see, these are not, these are not parlor tricks. They have specific reference to God's judgment now upon Egypt. God had not forgotten the infants drowned in Egypt. And so the God of the Nile, and the Nile was seen as a God because it was part of the permanence of Egypt. The floodplains of the Nile, which made Egypt fertile, one of the most fertile regions on earth at that time. The Nile was worshipped. It would become putrid and loathsome being turned to blood. God had not forgotten the infanticide of Egypt. And he hasn't forgotten, friends, all of the murderous abortions performed in the last 70 years in Canada and in the West. He hasn't forgotten any of them. His judgment doesn't fail. If we want to understand some of the troubles and the hardships facing our culture today, viruses, lawless lockdowns, inflation, energy crisis, cost of living crisis, war in the West, trouble on every side, people not even realizing or being unwilling to recognize that there are two genders. You see, God is not mocked. People's professed unbelief in divine judgment in history is irrelevant to the judgment of God in history. And Egypt was going to pay the price. 
So these are the signs and symbols Moses is given to assure him of his calling, that God is with him, and he has the power to accomplish the work. So God did not turn Moses into a magician. He said, these three signs I'm going to give you the power to perform as signs to Israel and, of course, to Egypt itself. Now, there's two objections, though, that Moses has. At this point, Moses has all the empirical evidence anybody could want to trust God and obey him. God's almighty power has been made manifest in front of him. I mean, he's having a conversation with a bush. Now, you, you know, bushes burn, so there's nothing particularly miraculous about that. But this bush isn't being consumed. It just keeps burning. And the voice of God speaks from the bush. He's, he's, so he's, he's had this experience at the burning bush. Now God is performing these signs in front of him. And he's having doubts. You know, God is not bound by his laws for creation. For those laws simply express his will. What scientists, what we call natural laws, are simply... God's ordinary way of working, God's will for creation. Scripture says that all things are held together by the powerful word of God. Christ's word holds it all together. Signs, to be signs, otherwise they wouldn't really be signs, occur when God does something different to his ordinary way of working. So we actually have to get rid of this rationalistic, enlightenment view of the universe where we tend to see it as a highly complicated clock or mechanical device which runs under its own power, under its own laws, under its own steam, and then occasionally God, with a divine monkey wrench, puts it into the cogs, does something different briefly, then pulls it out and off the world goes running on its own law in terms of its own law and power again. That's not the biblical depiction of creation. At every moment of every day, of every second of every day, all things are held together by the powerful Word of God in terms of God's ordinary way of working, His faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness. But sometimes He'll do something different to His ordinary way of working, and we call those signs. They point to something. They're not ends in themselves. I mean, if you see a sign, you don't sort of stop at the sign and say, what a wonderful sign. Well, let's, let's, let's stay here and have, a, have lunch. The sign is it's directing you somewhere. That's the significance of signs. Lepers aren't usually cleansed instantly. Blind people don't ordinarily see spontaneously. Water is not typically transformed to wine. It would be handy if it was. People don't usually walk on water. And normally, people cannot command storms at sea to be still. Remember what they said to Jesus? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Dead men don't ordinarily walk out of their graves. These are signs. And they are signs of the powerful word of God, the word who made all things. This is why, in part, Jesus performed these signs to show who he was. You know, when Lazarus was in the tomb four days, his brain had turned to liquid. And the sisters were concerned, don't roll the stone away, there's a stink by now. And Jesus commanded him to come out of the grave, and he came out all of his memories intact. That's the power of the Word of God. So Moses' issues now are not intellectual. Lord, you haven't given me enough evidence. He had no ground to question God's Word or power, but regardless, Moses makes excuses. Despite the signs, the issue is one of faith, not evidence. And this is why somebody who's been in the work of apologetics for many, many years... Uh, I don't put any trust in convincing people with evidences. There are plenty of evidences. They're everywhere. 
I don't think if you just memorize the evidences, you'll win people to the Lord. Ten lepers were cleansed. One came back to say, thank you, and he wasn't even a Jew. When Jesus raised Lazarus in the way that I just described, that's when the plot to kill Jesus hardened into a concrete plan. And that's why our Lord said, you will not believe even if someone is raised from the dead. So the issues are not intellectual, but Moses has his excuses. Paul is clear in Romans 1 that the challenge for unbelievers is not a lack of evidence, which he said is available everywhere in creation and in our own being. It's that we hold down the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress it. We tread it down. We make excuses. The unbeliever makes excuses. Moses makes excuses. What's his first excuse? Well, from the time he had risen up to kill the Egyptian, Moses' self-confidence, remember, had been gradually shattered. Do you ever feel like your self-confidence is shattered? Well, broken people whose hearts are transformed by the Spirit of God are ready and are ready to walk in His grace and power can be used by God for His victorious purposes. So if you're exhausted and feel like you've got nothing left and you're shattered, good. God can use you now. Your self-confidence, your self-reliance, everything, it's, it's, it's ebbed away. You don't have to stand in front of the mirror and with the power of positive thinking, make multiple positive confessions about yourself. We just believe what God's Word says about us. And God now can use us. God had given Moses these signs because his first objection had been, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me? For a person actually to believe they have something important and valuable to say to a rebellious people, culture, and generation takes courage and faith. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. This is not about personality. Oh, yeah, well, he or she's got that kind of a personality. It comes easy to them. No, it doesn't. It doesn't come easy to anybody to speak truth and faithfully to a rebellious culture and generation. The first thing we ask ourselves, though, when God calls us to speak for him, to stand for him, is why would anybody pay any attention to me? Why would anybody listen to me? I'm just an isolated voice. Remember what Isaiah said, the prophet? Who has believed our report? Speaking to people even in the church who seem determined to ignore God's law word and tolerate evil and injustice can feel a hopeless and a depressing task. And in his leadership of Israel, Moses is frequently depressed. In fact, at one point, he despairs of the people of Israel completely. Elijah, you will remember, after his powerful confrontation with the prophets of Baal and how God answers by fire from heaven. Oh, there's a woman after me. I'm going to run away now and hide in a cave and be all depressed because Jezebel's chasing me. And that was after God had answered at Mount Carmel, because it's thoroughly human. God has given us, though, every sign in Christ, in the witness of Scripture, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit to speak His truth with boldness and obey our calling. He graciously gave Moses the signs to go in boldness, and we have much more than Moses the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, and 2,000 years of history of the church of Jesus Christ changing the world. He had another objection, though. Not just they're not going to hear me. His next objection is a very familiar one. He has doubts about his own suitability and his own equipping to be God's instrument. Do you struggle with that doubt, too? 
Am I suitable really? Am I really equipped? I'm not a quick thinker, Lord. I'm not a good speaker like Jacob. That's what Moses says. I've never been eloquent. How can I speak to Pharaoh? How can I stand up in this cultural moment? Someone else would serve God better. How often has that been your answer to God when he calls you to do something? Well, the answer that God gives shatters every feeble excuse, doesn't it? What does God say? I can't speak, Lord. And God says, who placed a mouth on human beings? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say there in verse 11 and 12. In other words, what God commissions us to do, he will empower us to fulfill. He said to Moses, I've given you the power to perform these signs. Not any old sign he wanted to do. You know, he couldn't have you know, parted his soup. I think that was some film, wasn't it? Jim Carrey or something or other, parting his tomato soup when God briefly gave him some power. He wasn't given any old power to do what he liked. What God commissions you to do, he gives you the power to fulfill. Are we inadequate to God's calling in our lives? Yes. Yes, we can all answer yes to that. We all are. But God will be with our mouth. That's literally what the text says in Hebrew. He says to Moses, I will be with your mouth. Where does God need to be in your life? What's he asked you to do? There's an interesting parallel here, isn't there, to the words of, Je for the words of Jesus to his disciples. He said, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for you will be given what to say in that hour, because you are not speaking but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Jesus is clear that to challenge the rebellion and the oppression and wickedness of our time and culture is difficult and at times dangerous. Just think of the last two or three years. He warns us, beware of men. Even those who don't know Christ and speak up to resist injustice have had a hard time. In recent years in our culture, I can think of two in, in the UK, a prominent uh, university professor who dared to oppose the trans lobby, harassed, abused, dismissed. A former Supreme Court Justice, Lord Sumption, opposing state overreach and illegal mandates, attacked mercilessly for speaking common sense. Doesn't even matter who you are. Similar in Canada, professors, ethics professors, losing tenure, losing their jobs. And these are those who don't openly profess Christ. How much more those who proclaim and defend God's law and gospel and call a people to repentance, who speak to kings and governors and premiers to, to account in terms of the word of God. We've seen in recent years, in recent months, Things that we couldn't have imagined even five years ago. Evangelical pastors being fined, imprisoned, persecuted for faithfulness. Humanly speaking, against the torrent of evil and injustice we face today, we are helpless, but not when we are called and sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he always equips us to fulfill the task he sends us to do. I remember... Many times I could give many stories, I won't because of time, I'll just give one over the years, when I've had to face my own doubts about my own abilities and the intimidation of culture and its narrative all around. 
I remember once sitting on a platform in Ottawa, here in Canada at a university for a debate on the existence of God, and they brought up a um, leading humanist from America to uh, tackle me at this university. And I remember there were two tables, so there's a podium in the middle, there was a table there, a table here, and I was sat at this table here. It was about 15 minutes before the debate was about to start. There were hundreds of students in the auditorium, and there were guests too. And I remember looking out across the auditorium and seeing some of the resentment, the malice, the hatred in some of their faces directed towards me. They could see me sat there with a Bible in front of me. They knew who I was. I wasn't the guy they were cheering for. And as I looked out there, I thought, Lord, what am I doing here? And I was scared. And so I looked down at my Bible and I opened my Bible at random. This is not my personal devotions advice. This is just what happened to me on that day. I looked down at my Bible, I opened the Bible, and my, my eyes alighted on Jeremiah 1, 8 and 9. As I looked down, is the first thing I saw. Do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And it was a great evening. It was a great evening. So the focus in both Exodus and Matthew is on being ready and willing to stand, to speak, to be dependent on God, whatever our station, whatever our situation, and God accepts no excuses. And yet Moses still is in doubt. And he says, which was the real point, please, Lord, Send somebody else. He's had the burning bush. He's had the miracles. God's told him he's going to be with his mouth. Lord, send another church. Send another person. Call somebody else. I can't do it. Well, Moses angered God, Scripture says, with this. But he's so gracious, he accommodates Moses' weakness, and he meets him halfway, and he says, okay, your brother Aaron, he's a good speaker. He's a good speaker. Like a presidential press secretary, he says, he will be your mouth. Lord knows the guy south of the border needs a press secretary these days. The content, the authority, was to come from Moses. Aaron was the speaker. Now that tells us we may have different, vo different roles, different callings. We're not all the speakers. We may have another role, a background role, a less visible role in the kingdom of God. But faithfulness to God's calling is the key requirement. Moses is ordered then to take the staff as he represents God as the shepherd of Israel. He's representing God as the shepherd of Israel. And this arrangement of Moses and Aaron, Aaron as the spokesperson, is used again in God's sovereignty to have a deep impact on Pharaoh. Because again, this isn't by mistake either. Listen to the way one commentator has explained it. Pharaoh was to the Egyptians the great God, and as such, he spoke to the people through various officials who were his mouth. The Lord uses Moses' reluctance to establish an ironic parallel, one which both mocks and challenges Pharaoh. Moses appears before Pharaoh as God's prophet and also instead of God. Like Pharaoh, he has a mouth, Aaron to speak for him. This was so bold a challenge and one accompanied with supernatural judgments that it restrained Pharaoh's vengeance against Moses and Aaron. When you've read the account of the Exodus, you ever thought, why doesn't Pharaoh just kill Moses and Aaron? They haven't got an army. Well, because Pharaoh is intimidated by the fact 
that here you have Moses representing God and his mouthpiece. Just as Pharaoh had a mouthpiece, he knew that this was a standoff between two gods. His claim to divinity, and the person he thought of was the God of the hills. And God was going to teach him that God is not just the God of the hills. He's the God of all the earth. This was a religious confrontation. It's why when Pharaoh's magicians do the trick with their staffs and snakes appear, Moses' serpent eats up theirs. Now, if you speak up, you will be asked, and if you stand up, you will be asked to speak up and stand up on behalf of others. We're required by God to speak faithfully to our generation, whatever the cost may be. Jesus says in Luke 21, therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So don't worry about thinking I've, I've got to have everything all ironed out before I say anything. God will give you the words. And so when Moses later met Aaron in the wilderness, they went together. You know, the Puritans used to say Moses and Aaron as civil authority and priestly authority went together and kissed one another on the mountain of God. They said that's the picture of church and state. That's another subject. But they met on the mountain and they embraced one another, and two brothers were ready now to speak truth to power with a wooden staff in their hand and the Word of God in their hearts. That's it. Go confront Egypt and Pharaoh and all the might and power of Pharaoh with a wooden staff and the Word of God. Finally, there's a few false summits in this finally. I'll just warn you, but it is finally. Freedom for the people of God. Freedom for the people of God. Let's finally just briefly consider the goal and focus of Moses' calling. The goal of all of this is the progress of the kingdom of God. Moses is being sent on mission. He's gone respect, respectfully to his father-in-law for a blessing of peace to return to Egypt, and he receives that. And God assures Moses that those who sought his life are now dead, and it's at this point that God reminds him of the central message he is to give to Pharaoh. The signs are only to do with the message he's supposed to give. And what is it? Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so that he may worship or serve me. Since the pharaohs considered themselves sons of God, this was also a direct challenge to their status. Israel is my firstborn son. And it came with a warning of judgment on the sons of Egypt if they refused. Now, the critical thing to notice here is that the kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. The kingdom of God entails freedom for the sons of God. Think about this great story of the Exodus, this great account of the Exodus, is the story of the gospel from slavery to freedom through our deliverer. Remember the Passover. I mean, we could do a series of sermons on this, the Passover lamb. It's the story of the gospel from slavery to freedom. It's a picture of the gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Pharaoh, in many respects, is a type of Satan. Moses, a type of Christ, as our deliverer. The apostle Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. If the people of Israel were to truly worship God, they needed to be liberated to serve God. You see, this tells you that our faith is not some private thing that just goes on behind between our ears. If we're going to really worship God, we must be free to serve the Lord. They needed to receive his covenant law and be a light to the nations. So the gospel of the kingdom needed a home from where to spread. And that was going to be 
Israel's inheritance in the land from the law and the prophets went out to the nations. And this is what's going on in the gospel. Jesus is on the mountain, and he's there at the mountain of transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And do you know what they discuss? The scripture says there, they talk of the exodus he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the, the greater Moses on the mountain speaks with Moses and Elijah about the exodus he is about to accomplish. And did you know that Jesus' ministry is a recapitulation of the journey of Israel? You see, Jesus is the truly obedient son. He's the true Israelite. Out of Egypt, the prophet says, I have called my son. Where did Jesus go after Bethlehem? Egypt. And then he goes through the waters, just as Israel, the Hebrews, went through the waters. He goes through the Jordan. And when he's baptized in the Jordan, he then goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And there, he does what the Israelites couldn't do, and he resists all the temptation of Satan. And then when he comes in from the wilderness, he goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses to expound the law of God in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Moses was being sent to liberate God's people, you see, so that there could be both a people and a place for the law and promises to be believed and applied. This is, where, this is why wherever the gospel has gone throughout history, it's brought liberty and freedom. And wherever it declines, oppression and injustice emerge. I was looking at something in Charles Spurgeon again recently, and uh, we have in England a festival on November the 5th. It's called Bonfire Night. Anybody familiar with Bonfire Night? Put your hands up. A few of you. If you haven't heard of Bonfire Night, put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. <laughs> okay, it's November 5th is Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night. Right? It actually, the November 5th celebrates two things. One, it recognizes God's deliverance in the foiling of a plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament in 1605, which at the time was the citadel of the Reformed faith and of the gospel. And it also is the date on which William of Orange, William III, arrives in England, and we have the glorious bloodless revolution which establishes liberty in England, proper and full liberty in England. And Spurgeon wrote this, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher in England, he said, our convictions and our love of liberty should make us regard its anniversary with holy gratitude. Let our hearts and lips exclaim, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in days of old. You have made this nation the home of the gospel. And when the enemy has risen against her, you have shielded her. You see, there's somebody recognizing that the gospel needs a people and a place. England was made the home of the gospel. Canada and the United States were made a home of the gospel, freedom for the gospel, and spread the gospel throughout the nations. Not just England, Scotland too. Speaking of Scotland, John Knox, in his admonition to England, developed a theology of resistance to tyranny that contributed to the preservation and development of liberty across Europe. And we've been squandering this privilege. We've been selling our birthright. If the sons of God, the brothers of Christ, the firstborn son, are bound up by the state, freedom is eventually destroyed for the gospel. That's why a stand was so necessary these last two years. And the state isn't letting up. Bill C-4... You know, it's now a criminal offense for your pastor or even you as a parent to take one of your children or even an adult, a friend, to see a pastor, to receive prayer and counsel about unwanted same-sex desire or confusion about their identity. Did you know that? Did you know you can go to prison for up to five years in Canada for that now? And that Bill C-4 in the language of the bill itself, the law itself, reduces the Bible to a myth. You know that next year, 
They're trying now to expand MAID, medical assistance in dying. Do you know who to? Children. Children. And to the depressed. And then, of course, there's the online control bill, the internet control bill that's coming that's going to be trying to prevent freedom. You see, freedom is about a people and a place. That's why land grants come in the Bible, Eden, Canaan, and now the whole earth. John Knox actually argued, he said, the common people had the right and duty to disobedience if the state officials ruled contrary to the Bible. To do otherwise would be rebellion against God. Francis Schaeffer actually pointed out that in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, there was not only religious noncompliance, there was civil disobedience as well. It's about a people and a place. Because if you don't have a place, how are you going to apply the Word of God? How are you going to apply, apply the reality of the gospel? If you can't even teach your own children, pastors cannot counsel their own congregants by law, where is, the, where is the freedom for the gospel? That's why I was committed, along with another pastor, to drafting the Reopen Ontario Churches campaign, and then I drafted the Niagara Declaration. My own church remained open. And I've got, I'm so thankful for this church and the stand that the pastor, Jacob, and, el and the elders took here, because we must be released to worship and to serve. The gospel involves a people and a place, and we carry that message to all the nations. And if we fail to recognize the importance of this, we fail to see the meaning of the Exodus, which God says to Moses is, let my son go. that he may worship me. God honors and blesses nations that give free reign to the gospel of God. Look what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 54. We're given this assurance as we speak. No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will refute any accusation raised against you in a court. This is the heritage of the Lord's servants, and their righteousness is from me. This is the Lord's declaration. Now, you might think, how did Joe get to the end of that sermon and avoid blood and foreskins? <laughs> well, let me just say this in conclusion. That strange event at the end there. Moses is reminded on his way to Egypt that judgment begins with us. Judgment begins with us. You see, one of his sons wasn't circumcised. That's disobedience. He wasn't part of the covenant. He didn't have the sign of the covenant. That was important. But the sign of the covenant was there. We can't go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and God's righteous law and expect fruit if we ourselves are not committed to obedience to God's covenant word in our own homes and in our own families. It's a prerequisite of being able to speak for God. We're told God was ready to confront him and slay him for disobedience to his covenant. Rebellion. Thank goodness for a faithful wife there. Yeah, Moses is more than absent-minded. And she comes in and she throws it on the floor. You're a, you a husband of blood to me. I could have lost you, maybe even my son, because you've been disobedient to the Lord. You see, God is no buttercup. He's a righteous and he's a holy God. And Paul tells us the same thing. That God has the right to judge anyone who despises his covenant. You know what Paul says about the signs that we have of the covenant today? course, our baptism and the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, if we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, he says, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you've despised the Lord's table. So that's what we're reminded of at the end. It's not all about Pharaoh in Egypt. It's also about us. Judgment begins, the scripture says, with us at the house of God.
And if it begins with us, then what will be the state, what will be the condition of those who disobey the gospel of God? So let's go forward in boldness and faith, knowing that God has given us every sign and every promise that we can fulfill the calling that He's given to us. Amen.